My name is Walter Cayley and I'm a professor of law at the University of Bern. And uh, today I will talk about climate change and uh, population movements. When we're talking about the uh, effects of uh, climate change, uh, then we have to take into account the fact that people may be displaced by some of the effects, such as natural disasters, that other people will migrate as uh, an adaptation strategy. From a legal perspective, this is raising um, several issues and questions, and uh, sometimes discussions are marred by the fact uh, that responses come very quick. These people are refugees. Are they really refugees? Or populations who have to leave island states that are submerged become stateless, but do they really become stateless? These are the kind of questions I would like uh, to look at. It's a very important topic because even though the relationship between climate change, its effects and population movements is exceedingly complex, we can see that more and more people have to move because of some of these uh, effects. Uh, just to give you some uh, figures, a uh, recent study by um, the uh, Norwegian Refugee Council's Internal Displacement Monitoring Centre and Dotscha said that um, in uh, 2008 we had 4.6 million persons newly displaced within their own country by conflict, but we had at least 36 million people displaced by natural disasters. Of these uh, 36 million, 20 million were displaced by disasters that are climate related, flooding, windstorms, the rest uh, by earthquakes, uh, disasters that have nothing to do with um, climate and its uh, change. These are impressive figures. So let's have a harder look at what's going on and um, what we can say even in a situation where predictions of how many people will have to move um, are just um, estimates, guesstimates, some say 20 million, some say 500 million, some say even uh, 1 billion. Uh, it's impossible uh, to uh, make any kind of a prediction. But what I would like first to do in this lecture is to describe five typical scenarios, scenarios which are likely to trigger population movements. I will then go on uh, to look at who are the persons, how can we qualify them from a legal perspective? Are they migrants? Are they refugees? Are they uh, something uh, else? And finally, I will look at the question of whether we do have the normative frameworks in place that are needed to address the protection and assistance needs of uh, these uh, people. So, let's start with the uh, scenarios. The uh, scientists, um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, these people tell us the effects of climate change primarily have to do with what they call water stress. Some uh, regions uh, will be um, affected by much less water. For instance, uh, parts of the tropics uh, along the Mediterranean uh, Sea, some of the Middle Eastern regions, southern tips of uh, Africa and Latin America, they will have much less water. This means drought. And in the most extreme case, it means um, desertification of formerly, uh, previously uh, fertile lands. Water stress can also mean too much water. Uh, 
can mean flooding, can mean landslides uh, caused by uh, too much rain, can mean rising sea levels. And again, there are parts, uh, for instance, Eastern Africa, uh, the Indian subcontinent, parts of uh, China, the northern latitudes that, according to the experts, uh, will be faced with more and more water and its negative consequences. I already mentioned uh, the rising sea levels uh, caused by uh, melting of um, the uh, glaciers uh, of the ice uh, in the Antarctic and Antarctica. And this will affect uh, the big deltas, the mega deltas in Asia, in uh, Africa. It also will affect uh, low-lying uh, small uh, islands. They will not sink, but they might uh, be uh, submerged by the rising uh, water. Based uh, on these predictions, I think uh, we can distinguish five scenarios that are useful for a legal analysis of uh, how uh, best to protect uh, these people. First scenario, sudden onset disasters caused by uh, climate. That's flooding, that's windstorms, hurricanes, typhoons, cyclones. They are called in the different parts of the world. Uh, this um, is what is caused by heavy uh, rainfalls and by strong winds. Very often people have to flee. Uh, flooding is a very clear cut case, but also windstorms can destroy whole uh, villages, uh, towns, uh, cities, and uh, people have to go away. Second scenario, slow onset environmental degradation. This is caused by the slow effects of climate change. It's getting um, drier and drier, drought not every 10 years, but every second year, every year. Uh, the deserts are expanding. It's becoming more difficult. Flooding again and again, meaning that uh, uh, the salt is affecting the groundwater, is affecting uh, the plants. So livelihoods are becoming more difficult. In uh, these uh, circumstances, people uh, probably at the beginning will just move away because livelihoods are limited. They want to avoid uh, situations of poverty. But later, it's possible that it's simply not possible to remain unless you really invest a lot into bringing in uh, water, etc., etc. Third scenario, uh, very often referred to as uh, sinking small island states. I already mentioned um, the uh, risk that some low-lying islands will uh, be uh, submerged by raising, rising sea levels. And in some cases, it means not only a part of the country is affected, but the whole territory of the country is affected. And the question is, where are uh, these people going to? Where can they find a new home? Fourth scenario, that's the scenario of um, designation of areas as high-risk zones, too dangerous for human habitation. Already now, governments that take the protection of their populations seriously are very often forced uh, to tell people, you can't remain here, it's simply too dangerous. It's not flooding just this year, it will come back next year. We have to evacuate you, we have to resettle you. In mountainous areas where permafrost is uh, thawing, you will have very unstable, uh, steep hills that uh, may uh, turn into yeah, landslides destroying villages, uh, destroying infrastructure. Again, 
authorities will designate some of these uh, zones as uh, too dangerous for human habitation. People will be resettled, even against their will. And finally, fifth scenario, uh, the um, situations where we have um, unrest, seriously disturbing public order, violence, even armed conflict, because resources become scarce. And uh, when there is competition over resources, it's well possible that uh, these degenerate into situations of violence, and violence is uh, forcing people out, uh, forces them to flee, uh, to uh, go away, to escape uh, these uh, dangers. So we have these five scenarios. Sudden onset disasters, slow onset disasters, the case of sinking, so-called sinking or rather submerged small island states, the case of uh, areas designated uh, to be do too dangerous for human habitation and situations of armed conflict, situations of violence triggered uh, by um, competition over uh, scarce resources that are becoming scarcer because of the effects of climate change. Let's move on to the next question. Who are the affected persons? What's the nature of their movement? And how should we qualify them from a legal perspective? This is an important question because if we can answer the question, then we know whether we do have uh, sufficient uh, legal frameworks in place to address their specific needs or whether we have to create new law. The five uh, scenarios, again, are uh, very helpful here. Let's start with the sudden onset uh, disasters. Here we have to do distinguish two situations. In situations of sudden onset disasters, movement of people almost in every case are not voluntary. Here we're speaking about displacement, about having to go away because it's the only possibility uh, to escape uh, dangers. What we know from experience is that most of these people, they remain within their own country. It means they become internally displaced persons. And I just mentioned the study about the situation in uh, the year 2008, where 20 million people had been uh, displaced uh, by um, sudden onset climate-related uh, disasters. And uh, the very, very large majority of these people did not go to another country. We do have a normative framework for the protection uh, of internally displaced uh, persons. Uh, this is the UN guiding principles on internal displacement. Uh, they um, had been um, elaborated in 1998. In the meantime, they have gained a lot of authority. The General Assembly on several occasions has uh, acknowledged uh, that these guiding principles, even though as such uh, non-binding in character, are an important international framework for the protection of internally displaced uh, persons. These guiding principles just restate what is implicit in binding international human rights law. On the African continent, countries uh, have gone one step further. At the sub-regional level in the Great Lakes uh, region, uh, last year, a uh, protocol on uh, internally displaced uh, persons that was negotiated within the framework on, uh, the, uh, of the Conference on uh, Peace and Stability in the Great Lakes uh, region explicitly 
addresses uh, the issue of those uh, displaced by sudden onset uh, disasters. Article uh, 3 obliges states, and I quote, to the extent possible, to mitigate the consequences of displacement caused by natural disaster and natural causes, and to establish and designate organs of government responsible for disaster emergency preparedness, coordinating protection and assistance to internally displaced persons. On 22nd October of um, this year, uh, 2009, the African uh, Union member states adopted an African Convention on the Protection and Assistance for Internally Displaced Persons in Africa. And again, this new instrument, a binding international treaty, uh, makes reference to uh, those internally displaced by natural disasters. Let me just uh, read here Article 5, Paragraph 4. Uh, states are obliged to, and I quote, take measures to protect and assist persons who have been internally displaced due to natural or human-made disasters, including climate change. This is the first reference in an international uh, instrument uh, to the linkage between climate change and uh, displacement. And then uh, Article 4 uh, says that state parties shall devise early warning systems in areas of potential displacement, establish and implement disaster risk reduction strategies, emergency and disaster preparedness and management measures, and, where necessary, provide immediate protection and assistance to internally displaced uh, persons. So, we do have a normative framework. We know how to qualify these people. They are internally displaced persons. The challenge here is to be ready at uh, the domestic level, to be ready at the level of the international humanitarian organizations to really uh, protect and assist uh, these people if uh, and when they are displaced. Now, second uh, category of persons in uh, the situation of sudden onset uh, disasters, scenario one. These are those who are fleeing across internationally recognized borders. As I've said, up to now we don't have too many of these people, but they do exist. I uh, recently uh, was um, in um, the southern part of Africa and uh, learned uh, when there is, for instance, flooding in uh, Mozambique, people will go across the border to stay with family members, with friends that can help them, uh, and uh, other uh, examples in the same region. Uh, more than 10 years ago, when uh, Hurricane uh, Mitch hit um, Central America, many um, citizens uh, of, for instance, Honduras were already in the United States or they went uh, to the United States to seek shelter again with their relatives and friends. That's a kind of mechanism. But what are these people? Are they uh, refugees? That's how they are very often called by the media, but even uh, sometimes in uh, discussion of a, a legal uh, character. So we have to ask ourselves, who is a refugee according to international law? The uh, 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees gives us a uh, very good and clear definition. It uh, says uh, that a refugee is a person who, owing to well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion is outside the country of his nationality. 
and is unable or owing uh, to such fear, is unwilling to avail himself of the protection of that country. Reading this, it becomes very clear uh, those fleeing abroad in the aftermath of the sudden onset disaster are not refugees. They are not persecuted on account of their race, religion, nationality or political uh, opinion. Having said that, I would not exclude that in exceptional cases we would have persons qualifying as refugees. For instance, if in a country the government would decide to uh, provide uh, assistance, protection to um, everyone who is a victim of a natural disaster, except people who belong to a very specific minority, ethnic, religious minority, and they are left out and thus exposed to life-threatening uh, risks to die of hunger, of uh, illnesses, then we would have this kind of motivation, maybe. One would need to carefully examine the case. Also in scenario five, where we have um, armed conflict, situations of violence uh, triggered by the fact that resources are becoming scarce, so people start to fight about it, over it, we can say, yes, it is possible that among those who are fleeing, we will have refugees in the sense of this convention. We also have in refugee law regional uh, conventions, uh, notably the African Convention uh, on uh, specific uh, aspects of the refugee problem in Africa. This convention expands the notion of refugee and covers, and I quote again, also every person who, owing to events seriously disturbing public order in either part or the whole of his country of origin or nationality, is compelled to leave his place of habitual residence in order uh, to seek refuge in another place outside his country of origin or nationality. A natural disaster uh, certainly uh, can uh, disturb public order. So we could say, just taking a literal reading of this language, these persons would qualify as refugees. But I have my serious doubts as to whether governments would accept that. Originally, the uh, notion of um, uh, distur uh, disturbances of public order were again related to acts of violence, uh, to situations where you don't reach uh, the level of an armed conflict, where you don't uh, reach uh, the level uh, of, um, for instance, uh, crimes against humanity. But still, it is related to violence. So only if states would be ready to reinterpret the convention, uh, we could qualify these people as refugees, and we are not there yet. This means we do have a gap, not for those who remain within their own country in the aftermath of a sudden onset disaster, but those who flee abroad, uh, who cross an international border, they are not refugees. At the same time, they are not migrants, because Migrants in international law are defined as migrant workers. The Convention on the Rights of Migrant Workers and Their Families says a migrant uh, is someone who goes abroad uh, in order uh, to uh, get employed, to seek uh, uh, economic opportunities. That's not the motivation of these people. They flee because of the dangers, because of the suffering, because of the very, very difficult situation they are in. I will get back to the question, what should we do about this gap? How should we address it?
But before doing that, uh, let's move on to uh, the other uh, four uh, remaining scenarios. Let's move on uh, to the uh, second uh, scenario, slow onset uh, disasters. Here we're talking about uh, slow environmental uh, degradation. It's getting drier and drier. Tracts of land are flooded uh, every year and uh, destroyed. What this means uh, in the first phase is that livelihood opportunities uh, are affected, that uh, it's much more difficult for people to make a living. And many in these situations will say, okay, let's stay on, let's struggle on. But others will say, no, there is no future here for my children. We better uh, move to another place where uh, there is are better economic opportunities within our own country or maybe even abroad. These people are migrants, uh, even though uh, their departure is caused by uh, effects of climate change. Their motivation at that time is primarily an economic one. Their rights are protected uh, by uh, the uh, provisions we have in international law for the protection of migrant workers. They don't have a right to be admitted to another country, but if they are admitted, their rights uh, are protected. Later on, however, the situation uh, may become so bad that uh, people simply can't stay. They have to move out. Of course, with adaptation measures, one can do a lot. For instance, in the case of desertification, one uh, can build very modern cities, as we see in parts of the Middle East or uh, in the West of the United States. But it's very, very costly, and poor countries won't have the possibility to do those kinds of investments. If these people remain within their own countries, they again would qualify as internally displaced persons. The legal challenge here is to determine from when on is movement no longer voluntary, from when on the element of choice is smaller than the element of coercion. But uh, that's a de decision to be taken on the basis of the actual circumstances of the context of uh, a, a given situation. Those who move across borders, it's the same thing as before. They do not qualify as refugees. They are not migrant workers if they really have to go. So again, we uh, are confronted with a gap uh, that does exist in present international law. Third scenario, the sinking uh, or submerged uh, uh, small island uh, states. This is again a gradual process. Uh, living conditions are becoming more difficult. People uh, move to higher grounds. And if the islands are really very low-lying, there are no higher grounds. So they say life is becoming too difficult here. They again move in search of uh, better opportunities uh, abroad in this case. At the beginning, they would be treated as migrants. But later on, and that's the fear of many uh, governments uh, of these uh, small island states, and I think it's a well-justified fear, the whole island might disappear. And again, it's a slow process. Sand will be carried away along the shores. Uh, there will be uh, flooding uh, very regularly affecting the plant life. And in the end, everyone has to be evacuated. These people, by definition, have to go abroad because the whole territory of their state is destroyed. They are not refugees because they are not persecuted 
on account of their race, religion, political opinion. They are certainly not migrants and migrant workers. They are people in desperate need of another place uh, to live. What are they? We don't know. It's another gap in international law. Some say these are stateless people, and we do have a convention on uh, the uh, status of stateless people, stateless persons. Well, international law defines a stateless person not as someone who um, has uh, not a state, but as someone who has not a nationality, who is not recognized as uh, the national, uh, as a national by the laws of a given country. Just because um, these uh, territories will be um, submerged by water, it doesn't mean that, for instance, the government uh, dissolves. Maybe the government will try to keep a symbolic presence by building up a small part of the island. Or it's in exile, and nobody will say you're no longer a state. The General Assembly certainly will not say at the UN level, we have to exclude you from our membership because, unfortunately, your land is now underwater. So these governments in exile, so to say, may continue to grant citizenship. And in that sense, these people probably will not become uh, stateless in the sense of international law, even though territory is an essential element of uh, statehood one of the three constituting elements, uh, territory, uh, population, uh, functioning government, and then the fourth element, uh, the ability of that government uh, to uh, enter into relations with uh, other uh, states. That's what the Montevideo Convention says about how to define a state. One element here is missing, but it doesn't mean that automatically uh, the state will be uh, dissolved. So again, we do have a gap. As regards scenario four, designation of high-risk zones too dangerous for human habitation. Uh, here people who are um, evacuated, who are prohibited to go back, are internally displaced persons if they remain within their own country, unless the government uh, really finds a new place for them to live there if they are relocated in accordance with uh, international standards where they uh, have adequate housing, access uh, to uh, services, health, education, uh, livelihoods, where they con can continue with a normal life, then they will again be integrated, reintegrated into a mainstream uh, society. But if this is not happening, if the government is not responding to their needs, it's just saying, don't go back, but doesn't offer a solution, these people will become internally displaced persons. And I mentioned uh, we do have the necessary legal framework to address their situation. Some of these people may leave uh, the country, go abroad, for instance, because no uh, relocation sites are offered and they don't see any possibility for them uh, to remain uh, within their own country and uh, to find a solution to their uh, predicament uh, there. And again, we are in the situation of people not being refugees or migrants, uh, the same gap. Scenario five is the easiest one. Uh, situations of violence, of armed conflict, triggered uh, by um, uh, conflict over uh, resources uh, that are uh, dwindling because of the effects of climate change. Here we have the usual frameworks, 
uh, these people may qualify as refugees if they are going abroad, are internally displaced persons within uh, their own uh, country. Uh, we do not need any kind of new laws because climate change is here just an indirect factor. What is in fact displacing is the armed conflict, the human rights uh, violations. That's the overview. We have now identified uh, the different categories of people. To uh, just summarize, those remaining within their own country are internally displaced persons. Those uh, fleeing to another, uh, going to another country may be migrants if uh, their departure is voluntary, for instance, because they do not want to wait till the situation becomes so bad that they have to go. And then we have a few cases where these people qualify as refugees because there's an element of persecution. But in most cases, as I said, those going uh, abroad will not fall into any of the categories uh, we um, have today in international law. That's uh, the gap. With this, I would like uh, to turn to uh, the last part of my lecture. How should we deal with these persons? What's the best way? How should we conceptualize the category of persons displaced across international borders by uh, the uh, effects of climate change I uh, described? People who are forced uh, to flee abroad in the aftermath uh, of um, disastrous, sudden onset, uh, slow onset, they are in a refugee-like situation. Their movement is not voluntary and uh, they go uh, to another country. And these are two of the elements of the uh, refugee definition. The situation is also refugee-like in the sense that they have good reasons to go. Unlike with refugees, it's not a well-founded fear of being per persecuted on account of their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, and so on. It's because of dangers for life, limb, uh, for their health, uh, that uh, are present in every situation of uh, uh, natural uh, disasters, uh, whether or not caused by climate change. So we do have some similarities. And what I'm proposing is not to declare them to be refugees, but rather to get some inspiration from uh, the concept of refugees in order to develop here a legal uh, framework, a legal category that would respond to the needs of these uh, people. I would start out not so much with uh, the vulnerabilities of these people. Of course, they are very vulnerable people, but um, vulnerabilities are always a little bit subjective. It very much depends on uh, the person concerned to what extent he or she is vulnerable. What I would propose is to look at whether these persons, and we're talking about those being abroad in another country, can be expected to go back to their country of origin. The focus should be on the question of what we could call returnability. Is it possible to return them? Under international law, I would propose Three elements must be given that we can tell a person, yes, you have to go back, you uh, have to return to your country of origin. First, this must be permissible under international law. International law does not create a general guarantee for people to be admitted to a foreign country. International law does not uh, create a guarantee for people 
to be allowed to remain in another country, this is largely left to state sovereignty. However, international human rights law has developed a principle that it's prohibited to send someone back to a country where he, uh, he or she would uh, face an imminent risk uh, for life and limb. It's a case law that has been developed in the uh, context of torture. When can we uh, uh, people send back to a country? We can't do that if there is a uh, real risk that the person will be tortured. But there are other dangers for life and limb as serious as uh, torture, and these uh, situations can happen in situations of uh, natural disasters where it's very difficult to survive in an affected uh, area. Second element, even if uh, return would be permissible because the danger is not so big, is it feasible to return the person? Very often it's not possible. For instance, um, if uh, the uh, area is still flooded, uh, so the roads are cut and it would be dangerous to send people back into a flooded area or airports are closed in the aftermath of a disaster or the feasibility has to do with the attitude of the government in the country concerned. The government says we are simply overwhelmed with the people who remained in the country. It's such a big disaster. We can't accept anybody else. We have to close the border or the government says we are not sure that you are one of our citizens. Show us your passport, your identity card. But when they had to flee, they left the documents behind. They were destroyed. When a person cannot be sent back, I think, uh, he or she again uh, would qualify for protection abroad. And finally, the third element, we have to ask ourselves, even if return would be permissible under international law, if it were feasible in terms of practicalities, can we reasonably, reasonably expect a person to go back? Or wouldn't we have to say the situation is still so difficult that we cannot expose a person uh, to uh, such a uh, situation? That's very much uh, the case in the immediate aftermath of a uh, sudden onset disaster. When the situation improves, then it might be uh, reasonable to say, yes, now the time has come to go back. It uh, might not be reasonable to demand someone to go back to a situation where uh, slow onset uh, environmental deterioration has made it simply impossible to survive. It's a desert now. There is no water. People will die uh, from hunger, not now, but uh, as uh, the new reality in the place uh, of uh, origin. If the answer to one of the following questions is return permissible, is it feasible, is it reasonable uh, to require such return, if the answer to uh, any of these questions is no, then individual concerns, I would suggest, should have the right to be admitted to a foreign country and to remain there at least as long as the reasons that uh, are an obstacle uh, to return uh, continue to exist. This is, I think, a rather simple concept. It's one that is inspired, for instance, by uh, concepts of um, temporary protection that was uh, developed uh, to address people fleeing uh, 
armed conflict, even though they do not qualify as refugees, it can be used in this context. But the question is, and that's my last point, how should we close this normative gap? Of course, um, as a professor, I could say, let's draft an international convention. As a professor, I could not promise uh, that this convention uh, would be drafted quickly, adopted and then ratified by everyone. I do not think that uh, right now it would be a very realistic uh, option. So it's probably uh, more promising if we start out at the domestic level, if we draw inspiration from those countries who already have accepted what I just outlined. And we do have a few countries. And let me give you uh, one or two uh, examples. The uh, United States Immigration and Nationality Act uh, provides uh, for the possibility to grant what is called temporary protection status under the following circumstances. And this is temporary protection status for uh, nationals of a foreign state. First uh, condition, there has been an environmental disaster in the foreign state resulting in a substantial but temporary disruption of living conditions. Second, the foreign state is unable temporarily to handle adequately the return of its own nationals. And third element, the foreign state has requested the United States to grant this uh, status, at least temporarily. This was used uh, in the aftermath of uh, Hurricane Mitch uh, 10, 11 years ago. Uh, that hit Central America and the country concerns simply didn't have the capacity to um, admit everyone who had been abroad so these people were allowed uh, to stay in the United uh, States. We do have similar legislation in some of the Nordic countries, the Swedish Aliens Act, uh, the Finnish Aliens Act and again uh, under very similar circumstances they provide for the possibility to grant uh, this uh, protection. At the level of the European Union, where a temporary protection regime was created for people fleeing armed conflict, it uh, is being discussed uh, to use the same format for uh, people uh, fleeing natural disasters. Would uh, such a situation arise? And I already have mentioned uh, the uh, uh, Great Lakes IDP protocol, the Kampala Convention on Internally Displaced Persons. This is, of course, not for people who go to another country, but it shows that uh, maybe at the uh, next uh, stage at the uh, regional level, regional uh, organizations would be ready to uh, adopt, to the negotiate, adopt and implement um, such uh, conventions for the protection of persons uh, displaced across borders. This is for me the way uh, forward. Let me conclude. At the time uh, of uh, this uh, lecture, uh, governments were struggling to negotiate a new uh, instrument uh, on uh, climate change. A document uh, that uh, would follow up on the uh, Kyoto Protocol as part of the normative framework set up by the UN uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change. One part of the text that is being negotiated talks about adaptation measures. What can we do to adapt to the negative effects of climate change? What I feel, what the humanitarian community feels, what uh, the UN organizations dealing with uh, persons who 
who have been displaced or who move voluntarily. For instance, migrants who use migration as an adaptation strategy. Uh, these organizations have called upon states to accept, to acknowledge that responding to the protection and assistance needs of uh, those displaced by the effects of natural disasters should be an integral part of adaptation measures. I very much hope that this kind of language can be adopted. It would provide a good normative basis for all the discussions we'll have uh, to um, uh, take up in the coming years to fully develop the necessary normative frameworks we uh, need faced with uh, the uh, potential and potentially disastrous effects of climate change. Thank you very much.